from the 100th Psalm, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. May God bless this, the reading and hearing of his word. This familiar psalm, one that particularly reminds us of the Thanksgiving season, we probably have read so many times that we don't really consider and wrestle around with what the psalmist would have us do. And as we go through it carefully, we find that he is giving a very eloquent summons here to worship, to the worship of God. And he says that certain things should characterize the worship of God. The worship of God should, first of all, be characterized, according to the psalmist, by joy. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. The Latin translation of this, uh, jubilati deo, Jubilati meaning, O be joyful. The Hebrew could be translated, shout aloud. How different uh, what he's calling for is from a lot of Christianity that we encounter in ourselves and in others who bear his name. I'm afraid too many times we're like uh, Stuttart Kennedy, the British chaplain and poet, uh, described uh, one military chaplain as he had the men say uh, our quadri is a solemn bloke we called him dismal Jim <laughs> well I believe that a lot of us are dismal Jims walking around and uh, that's the impression we give of Christianity and it's a false impression and it's a false worship the shorter catechism of the Presbyterian church certainly a, a solemn earnest document and nonetheless describes man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we're told over and over in Scripture things uh, to the extent that the true worship of God, the true relationship with him is a joyful thing. Uh, and in his presence is fullness of joy, his presence now, his presence later. The joy that we speak of here differs from happiness. Happiness has to do with happenstance. If things are going well, you're happy. If they're not going well, you're sad. And there's uh, room for this. If you've uh, lost a loved one or if something else has happened of a tragic nature as you see it, why, there, of course, there's a time for mourning, as Scripture say, and a uh, time of sadness. And yet, in spite of this, there can be a joy because the joy that Christ gives, my joy I give unto you, the joy that Christ gives is something that is independent of circumstances. It's a deep river running on in spite of the circumstances that we encounter. Paul, for instance, writing from jail to those who are suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ, the Philippians, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice, over and over. He sounds that trumpet note of rejoice in any circumstance. 
Peter writing again to those Christians who are being persecuted and going through heavy trials, he says, Wherein, that is, in your salvation, ye greatly rejoice, though for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness due to manifold trials. So we have a joy in Christ that is independent of circumstances and that should characterize our worship of God. Service should characterize our worship of God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Here the primary reference is probably to the public worship of God, in serving him in public worship as we are now. And yet this reminds us that there's no true worship without serving, without making him my master and yielding my will to him. It's always a temptation to offer our public worship like this as a substitute for hard obedience. Uh, it's a lot easier for my little daughter to tell her brother that she loves him and to give him a big hug than it is to share her toys with him. Oh, she can just do one all day, but the other she just can hardly do it all. And uh, we're the same way. It's a lot easier to come and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, than it is to really yield my will in obedience daily to his commands. And we run the risk of being those that draw nigh with the lips while their hearts are far from God, being hypocrites, those who act apart, those who wear a mask. The terrible warnings about this in Scripture should make us careful lest we deceive ourselves. True worship takes place when the worshiper ascribes worthship to God. Worthship. When he has in my life a position of value and worth and sovereignty, when God is in the right place, first place in my life, and everything I do I relate to, would he have me to do this? And I weigh my actions, whether this will be pleasing to him or not. This is worship of God, when I give him worth. Samuel to Saul, on one occasion, Saul had disobeyed and had uh, offered a sacrifice in the process, and uh, when Samuel, the prophet, encounters him, uh, immediately Saul goes to explain uh, how... Uh, he has done everything the Lord required. One thing the Lord had told Saul not to do was not to bring any of these oxen or sheep back. And uh, as Saul was explaining to Samuel how he had done everything the Lord required, right behind him, here come all these sheep and oxen. And old Samuel says, uh, you've done everything the Lord required. What meaneth then this bleeding in my ears? Rather sarcastic comment. And uh, Saul's explanation, oh, I saved them to sacrifice to God. And Samuel's tremendous remark, it's better to obey than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. God wants the hearing heart. God wants the yielded heart. David, you remember, in his Psalm 51, the return of the backslider, he says, Thou delightest not in sacrifice, ritual, 
at that point, else would I give it. The sacrifice that you delight in, the sacrifices of God, are a broken and a contrite heart. And that's the thing that I'm bringing, real yieldedness to you, real brokenness for and from my sin. As a relation between such worship and joy, no real joy until the the will is yielded to God. Uh, Then the matter, a third thing that should characterize our worship is praise. As he says, enter into his his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Praise, we're told, uh, whoso offereth praise glorifies me. And this praising of God sometimes gives us a problem. C.S. Lewis said that uh, there was a time in his life when he had a trouble with the matter of God wanting our praise. He said, we don't think very highly of the man who wants to walk around and be told how great he is. And uh, if that's all that God has in mind by our praising him, then it makes you feel a little bad about it. But then he said, I began to think on this and to realize that all true enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, where it's real enjoyment. For instance, if you encounter a new author and you really enjoy him, that'll automatically flow over into praise as you praise him and tell others about him. And it's the same with God. Uh, The praise is simply the overflow of our joy. We cannot, by our praise of God, make him any greater than he is. But what we can do is make him greater in the sight of others, magnify him in their sight and in our own sight. Paul said that it was his desire, whether by life or by death, to magnify Jesus Christ, not make him greater than he already is. He's already as great as can possibly be, but make him great in the sight of others. The last thing that should characterize our worship, uh, the psalmist says, is thanksgiving. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Be thankful unto him. Bless his name. Luther called thankfulness the most excellent virtue and the highest form of Christian service. When we are thankful to God, we are expressing our gratitude at what he has done and What leads us to express this gratitude is the knowledge that what he has done has been done in grace. In other words, the way that God has dealt with me was not in justice, but rather was in grace. He dealt with me in a way that I didn't deserve. Instead of dealing in harsh justice with me, he freely forgave on the basis of Christ's death. Therefore, it's this grace that calls forth gratitude, and the same have the, they both have the same root. God's grace uh, is his unmerited favor toward me, and it produces in man gratitude as a thankful response to God. And then our service, we are able to offer to God as a thank offering, not as something to earn his approval. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in the way they go about serving God. The non-Christian seeks to win God's approval by his, by his efforts to please God and keep God's law and so forth. The Christian doesn't do them from that motivation. 
the Christian is able to serve God just out of gratitude, not to earn his approval, but because he is conscious of having his approval. There's a little uh, verse that goes like this, I would not work my soul to save, that work my Lord has done. And if I seek to work my soul to save, to keep his commandments in order to save my soul, to do good deeds in order to save my soul, then I am either trying to substitute my work for the work of Jesus Christ or to add on to his work, my work. Either way, I question the work of Jesus Christ. I do not accept it as adequate and sufficient, but Christ did all that needs doing, and I cannot add to it. And to seek to add to it is to fail to trust in it. One old hymn says, Nothing either great or small, no sinner, no. Jesus did it, did it all long, long ago. I cannot add to the work that Jesus did on the cross to win my approval with God. But realizing that I have his approval by virtue of my faith in Jesus Christ, my resting on the work that he did, then, as the little verse goes on to say, I would work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. I would not work my soul to save, that work my Lord has done, but I would work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. It's the, it's the service of a son versus the service of a slave. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have gratitude, whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe. Having received the kingdom, we can serve with gratitude. Thanklessness is indicted by Paul as one of the two great sins of the heathen world. You remember in Romans 1, 21, where he says, When they knew him as God, they glorified him not as God, and neither were thankful. And if it's one of the two great sins of the heathen world, what about for a Christian not to be thankful? What a terrible thing that is. So joy and praise and thanksgiving and service are to characterize our worship of God. Gladly we're to worship him. Why? Why are we to do this? Here we pick up some incentive to help us do it. As he goes on to say, because of who he is, know ye that the Lord, he is God. This is one of eight royal psalms that you find right in this portion of the psalms. In each of these, it emphasizes the sovereignty of God. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth, let the earth rejoice, is the theme that runs throughout. The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Say ye among the nations, the Lord reigns, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. Over and over, this note on the sovereignty and the reigning of God. Just because of who he is and the position that he holds in the universe, we should worship him. And yet, uh, when you think of that, that means that he controls all. That behind the scenes, while we're not puppets, nonetheless, God Almighty is bringing about his plan. And when Hitler appears on the stage of the world, it was God's hand that ushered Hitler on the stage of the world, and it's God's hand that will one day usher him off. And when someone else, communist China, appears on the stage of the world as the mighty force that it is, it's God's hand that has ushered him on. 
and it's God's hand that will handle it. God is sovereign and controls everything that takes place. Nothing can touch me without his permission. What does that mean? Disappointment, his appointment. Change one letter, then I see that the thwarting of my purpose is God's better choice for me. Disappointment, his appointment. Whose? The Lord who loves me best, understands and knows me fully, who my faith and love would test. If God is sovereign and nothing can touch me except with his permission and he promises me that it's for my good, then I should receive it with joy and be able to. In an allegory called Hind Speed on the High Places, the Christian who has progressed to the point that's called grace and glory here, uh, as she has come along with the Lord, at last she put her hand in his and said, My Lord, I will tell you what I've learned. Tell me, he answered gently. First said she, I learned that I must accept with joy all that you allowed to happen to me on the way, and everything to which the path led me, that I was never to try to evade it but to accept it and lay down my own will on the altar and say, Behold, I am thy little handmaiden, acceptance with joy. He nodded without speaking, and she went on. Then I have learned that I must bear all that others were allowed to do against me, and to forgive with no trace of bitterness, and to say to thee, Behold me, I am thy little handmaiden, bearing with love, that I may receive power to bring good out of this evil. And so on. This is a truth that grows out of God's sovereignty. Not only because of who he is, but because of what he's done. He hath made us, and not we ourselves. Of course, he is our creator. This is obvious. Anyone who doesn't realize that there is a creator has no right to be teaching in any college because he evidences his stupidity. Any man that can look at his own body and not know that it had to have an intelligent designer is not qualified to teach anything. But when it speaks here of the Lord has made us, and not we ourselves, it's not just speaking of creation, but rather it's speaking of what God had done in constituting Israel, Israel, his people. Remember how the Lord had made Israel? He had gone down into that land of bondage where they were slaves, and he had brought them out with a mighty hand through Moses and brought them across the Red Sea and through the desert and on into the promised land. That the Lord had made them in that sense. And if that's true of the nation of Israel, as the psalmist sings of what the Lord has done for them. How much more is it true of the Christian today, of that member of the body of Jesus Christ? And yet perhaps the Old Testament picture, uh, some of the Old Testament pictures can help us appreciate what he's done for us as Christians. For instance, in the 25th chapter of Leviticus, you have described jubilee, jubilee. Thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. And then on the fiftieth year, then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound. On the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement, shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And ye shall hallow the fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land under the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, 
and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. Back in Israel, the man had hard luck. He could sell the produce of his land. He could not sell the land, for the land was God's. But he could sell the produce of the land that God had given him. But he could only sell it for a period of time. The maximum, 49 years, because on the 50th year, it returned to him. And he could sell himself into slavery, but on the 50th year, he would be set free. What an amazing thing. Can you imagine how they awaited the blowing of the trumpet, the man who had lost his inheritance, the man who had sold himself into bondage, the man who was split off from his family and forced to live and serve another man? Can you imagine how he waited for that year when those silver trumpets would be blown and they would proclaim a jubilee. His debts were wiped out and he was restored to his rightful inheritance. He was returned to his family. Oh, Christian, cannot you see in that a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for you and me? When he blew the trumpet in your ear, when you heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, and you responded, Immediately, you are restored to the inheritance that God meant us to have. Fellowship with him, the indwelling spirit of God. You were set free from your old debt to God of guilt and from your slavery to Satan as the one who dominated you himself. You returned to the family of God. He created us to be in his family. What an amazing thing, the jubilee. And you were able to rest from your labors in a sense. And yet... Whatever he's done for us in that respect, only greater things await when God shall blow that last great trumpet and issue in his final jubilee year throughout the entire universe. He made us, not we ourselves. Look what he's done. He sent his son. We did not redeem ourselves. And not only did he send his son, but he called us to faith in his son. Whom he predestined, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Why are you a Christian today if you're a Christian? The Bible says not because you're so smart and not because you were so quick to turn. Oh, no, not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth. God that showeth mercy. It is not that I did choose thee. For, Lord, that could not be. This heart had still refused thee. Hadst thou not chosen me? That's the Bible's testimony to why you're a Christian. That as many as the Father gave the Son would come to the Son. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. All that the Father gave to the Son will be drawn, will come, will receive everlasting life. Because it's not the Father's will that the Son should lose a single one. This is the biblical testimony of why a man becomes a Christian. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed when Paul preached. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. And not only that, but he shepherds us. As he goes on to say, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. His people. His people. I wonder if that dawns on us. What an amazing, rare thing it is to be God's people. When you drive down the highway, do you ever look over at the car on your right and the car on your left and the 20 cars ahead and you say, I wonder if there are any 
real Christians in those cars. I wonder how many people around me are really rightly related to God, because not very many are. Broad is the gate in the way that goes to destruction. Many there be that go in thereat. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leadeth to life. Few there be that find it. If you're a Christian, if you're one of his people, what an amazing thing that is. And that he's going to shepherd you. He's going to direct you. He's going to provide for you. He's going to see to it that you arrive safely in his heaven. Anyone who can consider these things and not be grateful are like the nine lepers that ten came and asked, Your master, save us from this loathsome disease. Christ said, I will. You go and show yourself. And as they obeyed, they were healed as they went. And only one came back and fell at his feet and said, Lord, thank you for what you've done to me. And Jesus said, but weren't ten healed? Where are the nine? And if we can see things like this and not respond like that tenth one and fall on our face before God daily in thanksgiving and praise and joy, then we're like the nine lepers and grateful. And finally, because of what God is like, we should do this. It says that he is good. That's the Old Testament's way of saying God is love. The Lord is good. His goodness shows itself in his everlasting mercy. When he extends us mercy, he does it in justice because his son died for our guilt. But when I receive that mercy through faith in his son, it's an everlasting mercy. What an amazing thing. God's going to keep me and continue to shower his mercy on me and forgive me and lead me on up to his heavenly home. And then his faithfulness, his truth endureth to all generations. God has promised certain things, and not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He is faithful. Paul said, I'm persuaded it shall be even as it was told me. And this is God's faithfulness to perform his promises. The psalmist thinks on these things and says, Brethren, how can we help but praise him? What are the implications for you and me? Do we have this joy? Do you have this joy? Do you go around like dismal Jim? Do we really appreciate what God has done for us? You know, you need to, you need to keep yourself orientated because everything around you is operating to orientate you in a different way. When you talk with your next-door neighbor across the fence who's not a Christian, there's something just in the whole situation that makes you water down the difference. Because we want to be tolerant, we want to be broad-minded, and, and we just can't hardly think of this fellow as doomed. And everything, members of our family who are outside of Christ, this whole situation works to cause us to water it down. You know, it's gotten so we don't even like to use the word saved. It's not sophisticated or to talk about hell not sophisticated but it's real and if the bible is true that's what god has done for me that by nature i was a child of wrath listen to that horrible language i was alienated from god an alien from the commonwealth of god's people without god in the world that's the biblical phraseology for what i was versus what i've become his child beloved now are we the sons of god Oh, what manner of love hath the Father bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. If you get some of that and let it sink into your bones, you'll be like the old colored man that we've spoken of before who 
went to the meeting, and as he'd sit in the corner, every now and again he'd just say, Amen. And he'd say, Praise the Lord. And he'd say, Hallelujah. And they had a new seminary student who was preaching, and he was from Princeton, and he finally sent the deacons around to see Brother Jones, and Brother Jones knew why they were coming. He was plowing. He stopped at plowing. He said, uh, they said, Brother Jones, uh, we know that you're a fine man and all, but you know we've got the new preacher, and he's trying to get us more dignified. And uh, he says, Brother, I understand. I've tried to control myself. But when I sit in there and I get to thinking of what I was and what the Lord's done for me, I was going to hell. I was a lost sinner. God has saved me. God has sent his son to die for me. He's justified me. He's put his Holy Spirit within me to sanctify me. And he's going to go. He said, Brethren, hold these mules while I shout. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'd be like him if we really begin to appreciate what God has done for us. And it's when we think on these things, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. When I think on these things, when I immerse myself in the scriptures and I begin to realize what God has done for me, then there just wells up gratitude and praise and thanksgiving and joy. And I'm just tempted to just go around with a silly grin on my face all the time. And we ought to do that way, is what the psalmist is saying, regardless of the circumstances that we are found in. Do we manifest this joy? Do we accept with joy those things that God permits to touch us, knowing that they're for our good. And what about serving God? Do we have other gods before the true God, or does he have work in our lives? I bet in this last Every Member Canvas there were any number who had to face up to the fact when they just looked at the stubs in the checkbook that they had other gods before the true God. And if you let God bring that home to your heart, what did you do about it? What will you do about it if you've been shunning it aside that you would serve him because of what he is and what he's done for you? For the non-Christian, these things cannot help but have significance if they are at all true. If it's at all true who God is, that he is sovereign, and what he's done in Jesus Christ, that he sent him to take your guilt and pay for it, then to refuse Jesus Christ, once you understand it, is the basis in gratitude and wickedness. There are no good non-Christians and no good people anyway, according to the Bible. But if a person knows what God has done and then refuses, what a terrible guilt that brings down upon you. It's, of course, erroneous. If you resist the sovereign of the universe, it cannot help but one day be banished from his universe. Why do you hesitate? Why do you put it off? Is it because you're looking for joy? Just a little more fun before you come to God? Are you presuming on the very fact that he is merciful? God is merciful. I can go on in my sin for a period of time without running too great a risk. But I'll tell you, you'll never find joy in that way And God's mercy will not be extended forever.
there's a limit. And I challenge you with all the earnestness that's in me to give heed to the claims of Jesus Christ and to give him his place in your life, to yield your will to him, to take him as the one who atoned for your sins. That trumpet of jubilee was blown right after the atonement. The one who died for your guilt, put your trust in him, invite him into your life, and then come and let's talk together. And you'll experience the joy that the psalmist talks of.